Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. Ahead on the show, Trump made big promises on the campaign trail about what he could do for coal. And miners voted for him, believing those promises. But can Trump deliver? I think we all have really high hopes for what the next four years hold. Wyomingites have been turning out in high numbers to protest a proposed constitutional amendment that would give the state management over federal lands. Many of the people testifying, in fact, nearly most of them, oppose the constitutional amendment. We'll also hear from the author of a new book who says humanity is experiencing a key transition point in its development. You have to believe that things can get better, that we can create a better world those stories and more all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Coal country is celebrating Donald Trump's victory. Support for Trump was strong from Appalachia to Wyoming. And now that he's been elected, people have high hopes he can reverse coal's recent downturn. But can he? Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. Jeremy Murphy listened to the election results on the radio in his pickup truck as he worked the overnight shift at the country's largest coal mine in Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Murphy says everyone at the mine was tuned in on their own truck radios, listening for the results. The two-way radios at work were really quiet, really, really quiet. But when it became clear Trump was going to win, Murphy cheered. He's originally from Kentucky, but moved to Wyoming after being laid off from his coal mining job there. He worried that a Clinton presidency would mean having to move again. We can't live in right Wyoming in a declining coal market worse than what it has been. Nobody can. We would, everybody here would own houses in a ghost town. It's been a rough market for coal recently. U.S. production is down 20 percent year over year. Three of the nation's largest coal companies went bankrupt in the last year, and thousands of miners have been laid off. Like many here, Murphy has faith that Trump can reverse those trends by rolling back environmental regulations. I think we all have really high hopes for what the next four years hold. Louise Carter King is the mayor of Gillette. She agrees. I think he can realistically tell the EPA to back off. She wants Trump to kill President Obama's clean power plan, which would have dramatically cut carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants. She also wants him to lift the current moratorium on coal leasing on federal lands. Carter King says she isn't opposed to climate change regulations. But I I think the way that Obama was doing it was just heavy-handed and... uh... And it just didn't make sense. Killing regulations like the Clean Power Plan is the main way Trump could help the coal industry. But will it help? I posed the question to University of Wyoming economist Rob Godby. Right. So uh, the short answer is probably not much. Coal's biggest problem in recent years has been natural gas. Fracking has unleashed vast reserves of it, pushing down the price and making it competitive with coal for electricity generation for the first time. And Trump has called for increased natural gas drilling. You know, the inherent contradiction in his policy is you can't put all the coal miners to work when you don't have high natural gas prices. In other words, if Trump wants to revive the coal industry, he needs to shut down the natural gas industry. And that's not going to happen. The energy sector is driven by markets. And Godby says those are hard to influence. President Obama found out it's hard to change energy policy. President Bush found out it's hard to change energy policy. And and President Trump is going to find out that it's hard to change energy policy. But for people like Jeremy Murphy, the coal miner, Trump's promises are their last best hope. And if he fails to deliver... If he doesn't do what he says he's going to do, you know, why are people going to vote for Republicans again? The stakes couldn't be higher for both miners and Trump. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. University of Wyoming political scientist Jim King joins us now to talk even more about the Trump presidency. 
There is a lot of speculation about how Trump will operate now that he's president-elect. And King joins me to discuss that and what some Wyoming residents said before the election. Yeah, you know, kind of the first question is, you know, what what will Trump truly make uh, his priorities for his first year? You know, raise a lot of things about uh, ec- uh, economic issues, about trade issues, immigration. Uh, at some point, he needs to sit down and sort out what's the most important. Uh, because one of the things we know is a president who throws a lot of things at Congress in a hurry. Uh, things don't get done because there's no sense of priority. Uh, so he's going to have to start by figuring out, uh, you know, what issues that he wants to push forward in the first three or four months, what issues then come up in, in the, the next, uh, you know, few months after that. You know, if you think back, you look back, you know, when Obama came in, uh, he made, uh, you know, his economic stimulus policy uh, the first thing and then moved to health care. When uh, Bush came in, uh, he made uh, his tax cut program the first thing and then moved to education. I mean, both of those kind of set the standard or follow the standard mode of you've got to keep attention focused on uh, something and you can have it you know, scattered attention on a lot of different things. So many times when we see a election, and, and so if you have a Republican or a Democrat that gets elected and there's a Republican or a Democratic Congress at the same time, it seems like they frequently are on the same page and, and they will jump ahead with, with those types of things. Do you see this Congress as being on the same page with him on, on most of the things you've heard him say? I'm not sure. They're certainly not on the same page in the same way that uh, the Congress uh, was in agreement with, uh, for example, Reagan when he came in in 81, the way Congress was in agreement with Bush in 2001, uh, to some extent Obama in in 2009. You don't have that same type of uh, connection because, you know, the president-elect is coming out of, uh, if you will, kind of a different faction within his party. Uh, And, you know, so there's not that that's, starting point of agreement, uh, you know, so it's not going to be as easy uh, as it might be for, uh, you know, a different type of, of candidate who uh, has been elected. But, you know, you, can, you still have uh, Republicans sharing a number of, of ideas uh, from the Capitol and the White House. So, uh, you know, they're going to be able to find some common ground. Is, is there pressure on him to deliver big, like right away? Uh, yeah, but there's always a, a newly elected president like that always faces that pressure. Reagan had pressure to deliver on his economic program, Bush on his, uh, Obama on his. You know, you know, that's, uh, the expectation is the uh, president will take office and be ready to move, uh, be ready to move forward uh, on whatever the key policy is. Now, usually... Uh, that's economics. We'll see if uh, that's what uh, you know a Trump administration presses. I would be surprised if it pressed something other than economics, because uh, that's usually the thing that is driving elections, uh, unless there is some major uh, crisis that's immediately facing the country. And I, I don't see that you know there's an emergency so much as a general sense that. We need to move forward on economic issues, and so I think that will be where uh, they'll press forward. But you know, the expectation is when uh, President Trump takes office, he's going to be ready to, to offer a, uh, a set of uh, proposals on the economy. Uh, we're not going to wait six months to see what he might come up with. I want to ask you one more thing, and, and so you got some attitude, asked a number of attitude questions, a lot of questions when you did your survey uh, and, and something struck me. I want to. I'll, I'll get there in just a second. But you know, we're hearing and reading so much about how the media and others missed some of the anger out there. When you did your polling, did you see that sort of anger in, in our state? Well, I think yeah. I mean, what we found in the uh, our survey of the Wyoming voters was that um, we had sixty percent uh, when asked. You know, and we first asked, you know, who do you plan to vote for? And then, you know, was this a vote? Are you pleading, Are you voting for someone, for that candidate, or are you voting, 
is your vote primarily in opposition to another candidate? And 60% said it was an opposition vote. Uh, and I don't have anything to compare that to because we didn't see the same type of environment where we thought to ask that question in the past. Uh, but that number struck me as you know being very high, and it was pretty consistent across. You know, a majority of Clinton voters were voting against Trump. A majority of Trump voters were voting against Clinton. A majority of the Stein and Johnson voters were voting against the other candidates. You know, it was across the board thing. It wasn't just simply one group was unhappy with the other. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. Uh, you know, three fourths of of our uh, uh, Wyomingites in our sample who were expecting to vote uh, were dissatisfied with the options they had from the two major parties. And when you see numbers like that, you know that there's just a general dissatisfaction. And when that happens, uh, you know, there's a, a pretty good chance that who's not in power is going to uh, uh, prevail. So you don't see people that are, even though they voted for them, maybe are all that excited about it. Yeah, I think I think that was uh, something that uh, stood out in this uh, survey. We asked you know a number of questions, uh, you know about you know how well does a characteristic, a word or a phrase describe uh, a candidate? You know, cares about people like me, shares my values, trustworthy, can make tough decisions. And across the board, uh, you know, Trump came out lower than Romney. Four years ago, across the board, Clinton came out lower than Obama four years ago. Uh, so there's just as a, a unhappiness that neither one of these candidates really uh, fit people's ideals. Jim King, always a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. When we come back, we'll hear what revenue options are being pitched by the state's cities and towns. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. In recent years, lawmakers have proposed several bills allowing the state to take over management of Wyoming's abundant federal lands, like its national forests, parks, and Bureau of Land Management areas. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, this week, legislators looked at yet another bill, this time proposing to amend the state constitution to allow public land takeovers. The idea of turning public lands over to the state has raised the hackles of a very diverse group of people. At a recent anti-land transfer rally in Casper, hundreds of hunters and outfitters crowded together with environmentalists and bird watchers. Then, on Wednesday, people turned out in droves at a Federal Land Resources Management Committee meeting in Riverton, too. Dan Smitherman is the Wyoming representative for the Wilderness Society. They kept bringing in chairs, and in fact, there was still standing room only in the room whenever they got down to business. And he says that's surprising since the constitutional amendment was tacked onto the agenda at the last minute. We became aware of this draft constitution amendment, oh, probably seven or eight days ago. It just kind of popped up on the radar. Originally, legislators were only going to look at a new report they'd commissioned for $75,000, looking at the feasibility of such public land transfers. And the committee did discuss that report, conducted by Y2 Consultants from Jackson. I think we did come to concurrence uh, that there is some stuff in that report that uh, was pretty sage advice. That's BAG's Senator Larry Hicks, who sits on the committee. He says the report's conclusion is that a land takeover might not be a good idea for Wyoming in tight economic times. One of them is, is that it's not in the best interest of the state of Wyoming to try to assume management of those public lands on a broad scale. The report also said that if Wyoming took over public lands, they'd still have to implement all the same federal laws and take over defending those laws in court. So we just become a middleman. The report advised the state to try co-managing public lands instead, using one of the many collaborative programs already available, like the Wyoming Public Lands Initiative that helps locals turn their concerns into legislation. But Hicks says the fact that such programs are necessary is a sign that federal management isn't allowing for enough local input in the first place. 
a lot of the Western states want the transfer of these lands is because the current model is not working for everybody. And Hicks says several of those states are working with the American Lands Council, a Utah group trying to find a legal way to take over public lands. That'll be tricky, though, according to a committee of Western attorney generals who released a report last month saying the constitutional laws that protect public lands into perpetuity are foolproof. Hicks says that won't deter states from trying, though, and Wyoming needs to prepare itself. He says the proposed amendment would allow the sale or swapping of lands, but only as long as there's no net loss in value or size of those lands. It could be a Supreme Court decision that comes down and says under the equal footing doctrine, the federal government must transfer those lands to the states. So whether we pass the constitutional amendment or not, it's important for the people of Wyoming that we have a discussion on what that may look like and what the people of Wyoming want now to guarantee those opportunities in the future. The equal footing doctrine could be used to prove that western states should have the same proportion of public lands as more densely populated eastern and midwestern states. Wyoming is 46 percent public lands. As an example, Kansas is less than one percent. Hicks says the goal of the amendment is to make sure Wyomingites never lose access to their public lands. But Wyoming Outdoor Council's Stephanie Kessler says a constitutional amendment is going overboard. We have tools now at hand to improve some of the issues that have been identified with federal lands management. And we need to invest in those first um, before taking what we think is an extreme step and unnecessary with a constitutional amendment. The Federal Natural Resources Management Committee plans to meet again to continue the discussion on the proposed constitutional amendment on December 14th in Cheyenne. To read the amendment, visit wyomingpublicmedia.org. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. With the economic downturn, sales tax income has plummeted across the state and local government finds itself in a world of financial hurt. Hiring freezes, layoffs, decisions not to move forward with road repairs, and the reduction of other services have been approved or contemplated all across the state. Recently, the Wyoming Association of Municipalities, or WAM, urged the legislature's revenue committee to consider ways to allow communities to generate more revenue. I asked WAM Executive Director Shelley Simonton how dire the situation is. It ranges. Some communities are seeing a downturn of 10 to 12 percent. Some are seeing upwards of 48 to 50 percent. Um, I have one community who budgeted for fiscal year 17, which started on July 1st. They budgeted 25% down from last year's fiscal year, and then in their receipts that they've gotten for July and August so far, it's already down another 17% from the original 25 that they um, that they budgeted. So, you know, it's hard. This is the sales tax revenue that they receive. That's mainly how cities and towns function is on sales tax receipts, and and those are just hard to predict. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you, and you already answered part of the question, but uh, this the sales tax revenue, as you guys are looking at it, obviously, if you're in those mineral areas, this is going to be a long-term concern, but is everybody facing the same kind of thing, or and are they concerned for a few years? They are concerned for a few years. I think um, we have had a lot of discussions at WAM. We had a summer convention last year in June, and then we'll have a winter workshop coming up this January down in Cheyenne. And at all the different meetings that we've had or conference calls that we've had with our membership, um, I have tried to express uh, the concerns that both I hear from the Craig Report and from the governor's office. And they're feeling it locally, and they're preparing for it locally. And I do think that, um, that they're preparing for it long term. Uh, the, one of the things that I like about municipalities is I don't see or hear a lot of um, what might be considered um, woe is me, or even whining. I mean, I, I get from the municipalities that they are prepared to make tough decisions. Um, they are looking long-term. They're figuring out ways to make good, solid cuts without, um, without costing services to their, their communities first, first and foremost. 
Now, now you talk about the sales tax money, and that's the local generated revenue, and there's a couple of other things we'll talk about in just a second. But one of the big things that that changed, I don't even know how long ago it was now, 10, 15 years ago, but uh, one of the things that has changed is that now you really rely more on state dollars, direct appropriations. Uh, They cut you last year, although they did add some money at the end. I'm reading that maybe you're concerned about the status of that money. Is it How great of a concern is that right now? Well, I think it's always a concern. The, the money from last year, what they call a direct appropriations, um, rightfully so, is um, this year coming out of the LSRA, and so the, the um, statutory reserve account. And so it, it's like spending money out of your savings account. Do you really want to do that if you don't have to? And, and I think the legislature coming into this general session certainly could, could change that appropriation if they wanted to. So, yes, we're being very clear that that, um, that, that appropriation to cities, towns, and counties is a must-have at this point. And, and it, sounds, um, it sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth a little bit, saying that we must have the state money at the same time we recognize the state is down. Um, we feel the sales tax uh, revenue shortfall locally. And so when we talk about cuts, um, we're already doing that locally, like I, I explained how some of the communities are already down um, locally. So when then you get a, a double whammy when the state cuts you back as well. And, um, you know, part of the report, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, is coming up with some proactive ideas on Mm -hmm. how municipalities and the state can work together um, to find some some more lasting revenue sources so we're not always, you know, kind of coming to the same pot. One of the things I I think if I was to summarize the top two or three things that you're asking for, not only securing the money, but giving you a little flexibility in what you do, is, is that a fair way to phrase it? Well, it absolutely is a fair way to phrase it. Um, as we did this report, we realized that cities and towns had very little control or autonomy in their revenue generation. And so while, um, while we have up to seven cents that we can assess in the last five, six, and seven can be assessed locally, even those are decided at the state level what they can be used for and the amounts. Um, again, also with the four cents, um, the state takes a portion of that and they decide what that portion is. And so part of this report was to just look at um, proactive ways that cities and towns could help fund themselves. Right. And so could I ask you about that? I, I, I saw in, in one of our statewide newspapers a lot of attention spent on liquor licenses. Would that be a big revenue generator, do you think? I don't know that it's a big revenue generator. I think it equalizes the playing field. And one of the things I want to say about the liquor licenses is um, we put that in the report, and right away I've talked (laughs) to the director of the Department of Revenue, and I've also talked to the state liquor division and the the liquor association. So WAM, just by producing the report, has already started conversations um, with the key stakeholders around the state. And whether or not we make major changes now or in the future, at least now we're all sitting at the table and we're coming up with solutions. And to me, I think that's one of the biggest wins. Yeah, and you've got a number of things in there, and people maybe can look at at some of those. I want to ask you, though, uh, about the increasing the state sales tax up to 5%. Knowing that uh, that's not easy, I think the last time we saw that increased was back in 92, 93, somewhere around that. I remember people crying when they, and I'm not kidding, Shelley, when they voted to pass that. Uh, How tough is that when you have some municipalities that, frankly, are near Montana that doesn't have a sales tax? I mean, is is this something that's dead on arrival, or do you think this is something that could go? Wow. Um, Right now, I think it's dead on arrival. I think that there's no appetite at the state to raise taxes in any fashion, whether it's sales tax or otherwise. So, um, you know, we did some studying. The, The sales tax was 2% 2% in 1935, it was 3% in 1967, 4% in 1993, and here we are at 2016. So we haven't raised the sales tax above 4%. And while, um, while Montana certainly is a, a major competitor, and you're right, those, those folks in Cody and Sheridan and some of those other northern uh, locales would be, you know, would probably struggle 
It's not to say that they don't right now. If you go down to um, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, they all have higher sales taxes than we do. Now, the the thing that also it looks interesting to me is, and you have this further down in your list of priorities, but since we're talking about sales taxes, sales tax exemptions, uh, I'm hearing from people that have real mixed views on this. Um, what's your thoughts on that right now? Obviously, it would benefit local government, but uh, you, would, is there any way that this could maybe come around and backfire and, and hurt some of your local small business people? Boy, we sure hope not. Our intention on um, sales tax exemptions um, is this, that any sales tax exemption hurts cities and towns, just as we just talked about, that the majority of our funding comes from sales tax. Um, But that being said, we fully and completely recognize and have seen the success of economic development exemptions. And so our position is that we support exemptions that are based in economic development and are not considered tax relief. So if it's an economic development exemption, um, and there are plenty of them, and certainly um, a lot of the larger communities have benefited, um, those are those are the kinds of exemptions that we want to see. We want to see business come in. We want to see them get a break up front and have some kind of incentive to come into Wyoming and hope that over time, I don't know what that time is, 5, 10, 15 years that they have job growth and that they have um, revenue growth, and at some point that those exemptions would come off. Um, so that's that's our position. Tax relief is one thing, and economic development is something else. So to sum up, if if you were just to say this, uh, if I was to say this, you know, we, you're looking for the stable money, the the 105 million that you've been promised, and then the ability to at least explore ways to generate more money locally. That's sort of what you're after. That's absolutely right. And truthfully, the way WAM has operated is that we have gone to the legislature, listened to their ideas, um, participated in a way that we either said yes or no, or let's change this or that. And this is the first time that WAM has sat down and collected our thoughts and brought them to the legislature and brought them to the state. And so these are all ideas. There are plenty of more ideas. And, And I've been just thrilled in taking this report around the state and watching people say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's starting to generate new thoughts and new ideas. And I think I think if that's what it does in five years from now, we have some flexibility and some autonomy and cities and towns are still vibrant and strong, then then we've done okay. Shelley Simonton, always nice chatting with you. She's the executive director of the Wyoming Association of Municipalities, or WAM. Thank you. Thank you. When we return, we'll hear about the future of coal and renewables and about a book that considers the future of the human race as a whole. This is Open Spaces. Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Donald Trump promised sweeping reforms to the energy industry during the campaign. He vowed to bring back coal jobs, boost domestic oil and gas production, back out of international climate change agreements, and gut the Environmental Protection Agency. Essentially, he vowed to undo most of what the Obama administration had done in the last eight years and take the country the opposite direction on energy and climate. Now that Trump is the president-elect, how much of that will he actually be able to do? Wyoming Public Radio's energy reporter Stephanie Joyce joins us now. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for being here. Of course. Stephanie, one of Trump's biggest promises was to bring back coal jobs. Can he do that? In short... Probably not. Um, Trump did make huge promises to coal miners on the campaign trail, and a lot of miners voted for him because of that. Um, But I think he's going to find keeping those promises to be quite difficult. You know, coal's biggest problem in recent years has been natural gas. Um, There's been a lot of cheap natural gas because of fracking, and that's led to a lot of coal plants either shutting down or being converted to natural gas plants. But a lot of people are still hopeful that Trump will be able to have an impact. I spoke with Travis Detai of the Wyoming Mining Association. Uh, Let me play you a little bit of the tape from that conversation. Coal can compete with natural gas, 
on a level playing field. And the playing field in the markets has had the heavy thumb of the government and the, and, and, uh, the regulatory burden placed on the coal industry. And that's put us at a, at a distinct disadvantage. President Trump is extremely likely to scrap the Clean Power Plan, which was Obama's signature climate change rule um, that would have cut greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, especially coal-fired power plants. Um, you know, but even if Trump does scrap the Clean Power Plan, I'm not sure how much of an impact that will actually have, at least in the short term. You know, first, because the Clean Power Plan wasn't actually going to go into effect until 2022. And second, because the utility sector is really already headed down the road away from coal. And Trump's ability to influence that is pretty limited. You know, utilities do tend to make decisions on longer timescales than a single presidency. And the reality is that climate change isn't going away. So, you know, the prospect of future climate change regulation is also not going away. And uh, utilities will probably want to hedge their bets against that. You know, not to mention that many states have renewable energy portfolio standards that will require them to continue transitioning away from coal. Speaking of climate change, Trump says he's going to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Can he do that? What impact would that have? Yes, he could definitely withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. He could just simply decide not to meet the terms of the agreement, um, and then we would effectively no longer be a party to it. Um, but you know, he would face immense international pressure if he does decide to go that route. Um, you know, during the election, China took uh, the very unusual step of commenting on the election and actually criticizing Trump for threatening to back out of the Paris Agreement. And you can bet they would be very, very unhappy if the U.S. were actually to do that. Um, but he could definitely do that. And if the U.S. does pull out of the agreement, you know, it's kind of hard to say whether that means that the whole thing just falls apart. Um, you know, countries like China could continue to um, hold to the agreement. They could take the lead or the entire agreement could disintegrate. And, you know, that would put the world on track for catastrophic levels of warming. You mentioned earlier that Trump wants to increase oil and gas production. Is that feasible? He can pull back on pending regulations to reduce methane emissions, and he can open up federal land for drilling. Um, but, you know, as with coal, oil and gas are really driven by the market. And right now, there frankly isn't a lot of interest in new drilling, not because of regulation, but because oil and gas prices are extremely low. And, you know, ironically, oil and gas prices are so low in part because there was so much new drilling that happened under the Obama administration that flooded the oil market, that flooded the gas market. And there isn't much Trump can do to change that. You know, he can make it easier to drill. He can make permitting quicker. He can, um, you know, take away some of the regulations that um, oil and gas companies don't like. Uh, but that isn't going to boost prices. And companies are only going to drill and expand when it's profitable. We've heard several Wyoming lawmakers say they expect a Trump presidency to help revive the state's economy. Will it? You know, I suppose we'll see. Um, the energy sector really is driven by the market. And right now, markets for coal, oil, gas, uh, the main sources of revenue for the state of Wyoming are down. And it's hard to see how Trump changes that, at least in the short term. Stephanie Joyce is our energy reporter here at Wyoming Public Radio. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Caroline. Wyoming, like other energy producing states, is shedding jobs in coal, oil, and gas. But the renewables industry is growing nationwide, including jobs to make parts like wind turbine blades and towers. Wyoming wants to attract wind manufacturing jobs as part of an effort to diversify its fossil fuel-based economy. But right now, the state has none of these jobs. Neighboring Colorado, meanwhile, has thousands. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson went to find out what's standing in the way, starting off in Cheyenne. From a distance, wind turbines are pretty sleek looking, but there's a lot going on behind those spinning blades. Brian Boatwright is an instructor in wind energy technology at Laramie County Community College. Right. He takes me up. So this is our nacelle. Into a deconstructed nacelle that's used for teaching. It's a huge rectangular box, usually perched high up at the top of the turbine. You see the white pole, but then you look up and you see something that looks like an RV sticking there. Boatwright trains his students to fix the parts housed in the RV-shaped nacelle. So what I'm going to do now is turn on my hydraulic pump. Many of those students go on to be wind turbine technicians. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the fastest growing profession in the country. Sounds great, right? But here's the thing. As of 2014, there were only around 4,400 wind turbine technician jobs nationwide, and only a handful in Wyoming. 
Compare that to the number of people who manufacture wind turbine components, parts like nacelles and blades. The American Wind Energy Association estimates that across the U.S., there are around 20,000 of these workers. So bringing manufacturers to this state would be probably one of the most incredible things that you could ever do in the state of Wyoming right now as a short-term band-aid. To stop what Boatwright refers to as the bleeding of coal jobs, Wyoming has lost hundreds this year. Attracting this kind of manufacturing is part of Wyoming Governor Matt Mead's energy strategy for the state. But Ben Avery of the Wyoming Business Council says there are some big barriers, like a relatively small available workforce and distance to an international airport. And then there's a more political kind of barrier to growing the wind industry as a whole. One thing that everybody knows about, everybody makes the comment, oh, you're Wyoming. The only state in the country to tax wind production. Everyone says that. And that's not positive. And right now, Wyoming is actually considering raising that tax. But just across the border in Colorado, it's a very different scene. Over the past six years, Colorado has become a top wind manufacturing hub with 20 facilities spread out across the state, including this one owned by the Danish wind giant Vestas. Vestas is the largest wind manufacturer in Colorado, employing around 3,500 workers statewide. This factory opened in Brighton in 2010. All right, just to start off real quick, we're employing about uh, just over 400 employees at this particular facility. Our enthusiastic, fast-talking tour guide named Chris Welsh showed us around the vast factory floor. We're building the nacelle and the hub, so two separate assembly lines. The process of making these parts, he says, is straight assembly. Honestly, average men and women that are, that are producing these. It's just, we do have good skill sets, but it's not something great skill sets like master electricians and uh, general foremen from construction sites. He explains the workforce includes everyone from ex-teachers to convenience store workers. Hello there. Hi. I meet Scott Winner in his office just down the hall. I am the vice president and factory manager. Winner says Vestas chose to set up shop in Colorado because of access to rail networks, proximity to wind projects, and an available labor force, which he hopes will grow. But when I asked how much workers here make, trying to figure out what these jobs mean for the local economy... No, I can't comment on that. <laughs> I just can't. But what about media reports of $16.95 an hour plus benefits? I can say that you're running the ballpark of that, yeah. As communities all across the country try to figure out how to offset some of the job losses in fossil fuels, wages matter. Because the average Wyoming coal miner, the folks who are losing jobs by the hundreds, makes around $34 an hour, double that ballpark figure of $16.95. So even if wind factories did move across state lines, this shift alone wouldn't come close to replacing coal. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. As America contemplates its future with a new president, one man has been looking to the past for cues about our future. Robert Kelly is an archaeologist at the University of Wyoming. In his new book, The Fifth Beginning, he argues humanity has encountered four transition points, or beginnings, in its history. The invention of technology, like stone tools, culture, agriculture, and the state. He sat down with me to discuss the transition he says is happening right now. First thing we should say is how do we know that we're in a, a fifth beginning? Because it's hard to recognize a dramatic transition if you're part of it. There was no hunter-gatherer who woke up one morning and said, hey, we're all agriculturalists now. My guess is that in the distant future, my archaeology colleagues will look back on this time and they will see that we are in the midst of another uh, beginning, another time of great change, which began about 500 years ago. It's the area of globalization. It's marked by massive building, by what geologists call the Anthropocene, a massive impact of the human presence on, on Earth. We see it in the atmosphere, in the CO2 concentrations. We can also see it in things like the concentrations of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, which is a result of uh, above-ground bomb testing. I think something that kind of plays into it that you mention in the book is that as a 
a species is adapting to one thing, they often become something else. So you mentioned how primates didn't mean to become bipedal. Hunter-gatherers didn't intend to become farmers. Farmers didn't mean to become part of empires. So what could we possibly be becoming? There are three things at work today. For 5,000 years, we've been on a, an ever-spiraling upward in the cost of, of war. That's a function of someone developing new offensive weapons, so someone else has to develop new defensive weapons. The cost of war is now phenomenal. And yet that technology can't really be used. I, I don't think that we can fight another war like World War II, where we accepted massive casualties on our side as well as on the other side. Can you imagine the President of the United States saying, we're going to undertake warfare in some place in the world, and we expect 10,000 casualties? How would the American people respond to that? I, I don't think they'll accept it. So there's ways in which warfare simply it doesn't appear to be worth the benefit given the costs. The other thing that's happening is the global reach of capitalism. Capitalism operates on cheap labor. And the way it's finding cheap labor today is by moving to some part of the world where labor is, is cheaper. The US moved labor to Japan after World War II. Then it's been moved to Singapore, to South Korea. Now it's in China, it's in India. And China is now building infrastructure in Africa because they fully expect to move their labor at some point to Africa. Africa's the last major landmass that has to have its standard of living raised up, which capitalism always does. Once it does that, there'll be no more cheap labor anywhere in the world. At the same time, capitalism seeks to reduce its labor costs through automation and uh, artificial intelligence. What do we do when there's no more cheap labor and, in fact, industries don't need labor? <laughs> Who's going to have any money to buy anything? So there's sort of a logical endpoint to that form of a capitalist uh, economy. The third process that's going on is the cultural effects of a worldwide system of communication and transportation. People can experience other cultures immediately through social media, through television, through the radio, but also immediately through the appearance of new people in their neighborhoods. Somalis in, in Denver, for example. That process is having two effects. One of those, I think we've seen the, the result of it in the recent uh, election. People are terrified. But there's the opposite reaction as well, where people are interested in cultural diversity. They're attracted to it. It's, it's another way of living, maybe, maybe a way that has some solutions for the common problems that we all face. And it, it makes other cultures purely human. These are three processes that are at work today that their inevitable result will be to restructure the way the world is organized. And you seem pretty optimistic about that, you know, end of war, global citizenship, the end of capitalism that on one hand could sound to some people very utopian, to other people very undesirable. But you argue in the book that there is a way forward. Why are you so optimistic? So... I'm not necessarily a terribly optimistic person, but I decided to take that position in the book in part because if I don't take an optimistic outlook, then there's really no point in even trying. You have to believe that things can get better, that we can create a better world. And I, I suppose that's part of the message which is different about the fifth beginning is that we had no control over the first four. No one knew that they were happening. And today, we understand how economies operate. We've got a lot of knowledge. And we've got a great deal of power technologically. We can do almost anything that we want to do. There's no need for us to retreat into isolationism, which is the direction that our country might be taking. It's the direction that the UK took with uh, Brexit. That's one way. That's one way that we can change the world. The easy way is to acknowledge where we're going to be in probably another century or so, which is a world that will have to be unified, 
that will have to operate economically in a way so that there isn't massive inequality in the world because that will only generate resentment and, and fighting. We know how to restructure the world so that that doesn't happen. We can do that now or we can do that later after a great deal of pain. I'd prefer to do it now. Robert Kelly is an archaeologist and the author of the book, The Fifth Beginning, which is out now. Thank you, Robert, so much for your time today. Thank you. Ahead, we'll wrap up by talking with the author of a new book exploring the history of the Indian Wars. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. It's been a long time since a large market book has tackled the history of the Indian Wars in the American West. But just last month, a new one hit bookstores titled The Earth is Weeping. Well, I'm in Public Radio's Melody Edwards chatted with the author Peter Cousins about why he felt it was time to get people thinking about this tragic era in American history. Quite honestly, there has never been a major popular work on the Indian Wars that told the story in a balanced, even-handed manner from both the Native American or Indian side and from the white side. The standard work on the subject has for four decades been Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee, which you know is a passionately wrought and elegantly written book but it made, D. Brown made no uh, pretense at objectivity. The, you know, the subtitle is An Indian History of the American West. And the book was written in 1970, a time when the nation was, was coming to grips with the, the many gross injustices done to the Indians, uh, coming to grips with this really for the first time in our history, kind of on the heels of the Civil Rights Movement. And... Up until then, really, the story had been largely told from the point of view of white, of white settlers, the government, the army, and the Indians were sort of one-dimensional cardboard cutouts. And and so D. Brown took it to the opposite extreme. You, you mentioned that um, most of the tribes were immigrants themselves that were kind of pushed west from sort of that eastern colonization. This was kind of a, um, a story of a lot of tribes that were kind of crashing into each other and weren't necessarily uniting under what you called Indianness. Tribes in the West were, were never really that well unified on a tribal level. And Indian government was very loose. Chiefs could not compel compliance. Any warrior could go his own way, he could decide whether to uh, obey the dictates of a chief uh, when it came to making war or making peace. And um, there was a fundamental um, disagreement among Indians as to whether it was worth worth the, the, the pain and the suffering and the hunger and the time starvation that was entailed in, in resisting the, uh, the overwhelming white encroachment on their lands, the overwhelming numbers. And I, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about, you know, what the overall strategy or philosophy of the U.S. government was during this time in dealing with the tribes. I mean, what was their goal in terms of how they wanted to handle the tribes as they moved into the West? First and foremost, and this is one of the, the what I call the myths of the West that is, is unfortunately too often still perpetrated, the notion that the government uh, somehow had a policy of physical genocide, of exterminationism. And, and uh, that's absolutely un untrue. The government never, ever, as a matter of policy, intended or desired to, to physically exterminate the Indians. The general policy that uh, the government tried to, to follow throughout the Indian Wars was to congregate the Indians on reservations that were well removed from the overland travel routes and then begin 
them on the road to what was generally called in those days the euphemism was Christianization and civilization. The belief was that the only chance the Indian had to survive as a people was to was to become uh, Christian white farmers, and that policy was pursued you know, throughout the course of the Indian Wars. Um, Again, with varying degrees of success. I mean, treaties were broken regularly. Massacres did occur um, for a variety of reasons, but never as massacres never occurred as a matter of government policy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the role that uh, the territory that eventually became Wyoming played in the Indian Wars. Western Wyoming, things had pretty well settled down. There had been some some clashes with the um, with the Paiute uh, and some again in the parlance of the day renegade Shoshone bands earlier, but by the end of the Civil War, the Shoshone, under the leadership of Chief Washaki, were firm allies of the United States government. In fact, the Washaki was so highly regarded that the army eventually named a fort after him. He was the only chief to be so honored. Eastern Wyoming and Northern Wyoming, on the other hand, were still very much in the hands of the Lakota. So there was a, a good deal of, of conflict, particularly in, uh, in that part of Wyoming, east of the Bighorn Mountains. That's where portions of Red Cloud's war took place against the Lakota. Well, congratulations. This is a, a really a wonderful book to read. It was just the actual writing of the book was a pleasure to read. I really enjoyed every bit of it. Thank you. And I, and I tried and I, to make it a, a character-driven book to the greatest extent I could. I was, always tried to keep in mind the importance of telling a good story first and foremost and to, whenever possible, tell it through the, through the experiences of not only the, the leading figures on both sides, but also from the point of view of the common warrior or of an Indian woman or a common soldier or a lower-ranking officer. So I, I appreciate your, your words in that respect. We've been speaking with Peter Cousins, the author of The Earth is Weeping, the epic story of the Indian Wars for the American West. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the program or segments again, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org and click on Open Spaces. You can also sign up for our show podcast on that website or on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We always appreciate hearing about good story ideas and interview suggestions. You can send them to us through that website. All of our reporters are on Twitter. You can follow me under the name C. Ballard News. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.